Somebody said that uh, this time of year, tomorrow, is the bluest day of the year because we've all had it with winter and the uh, length of the days is, you know, it's they're getting longer, the daylight's getting longer, but it's not really been that noticeable yet. And January, what's up, Joe? I hear myself. I'm not, I haven't tried to click yet. Um, you want me to? Yeah, it's working. Um, and uh, it was the bluest time of year, and that's an occasion for sure. <clears throat> a lot of people get uh, seasonal affective disorder, is that what it's called? And it's, uh, you know, the, the, you get tired of cloudy days and short days and, and cloudiness. And, um, and until February starts, the ha you know, the fun never really gets going anyway, so. So we could use a dose of this meditation. So rather than read the entire passage tonight as we have before, I'm going to click through that fast. Isaiah 40. And we'll get to... Um, what we've learned so far. So the flow of reasoning in Isaiah 40 is, is God is saying, comfort, comfort, in a time of crisis and judgment... Right? The people of God have been judged by God, and he says, Jerusalem is paid double. The, the punishment's done, and I'm going to make a way, and it's going to be my way. I'm going to reveal my glory. And so as you get dragged away into captivity, as, as you seem to lose more and more worldly power, and everything seems to be going crazy and, and going wonko in your world, God will take care of it, and he'll reveal his glory. And I want you to remember that all people are like grass. All of this fear that you have of kings and princes and rulers, people are way, way, way too temporary for you to get rattled. And then he says, rejoice. You know, here is your God. And he starts to explain who this God is. So, again, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough, shall be, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? And all people are like grass, and all human faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion... Go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And so that's the introduction to where we are tonight. And starting in verse 10 then, this voice, this one shouting good news from the mountain, the one who's not supposed to be afraid, is shouting out, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. 
So we talked about that just briefly at the end last time. And so we see that his power, his arm rules, and his recompense accompanies him. His reward is with him. So God is coming with power, and God is bringing his reward. So you remember where we were then? Okay, so the next one. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. What is that? Uh, what is, what's the point? What's he saying? I personally am kind of surprised, right? God is coming with power and his arm rules for him and his reward is with him. I'm ready to pay the mighty, mighty king. And it, it's like the whole tone and focus shifts to this tender image of a shepherd being gentle with tiny little lambs. What's the, what's the point of this part? What, how would you expand that? How would you tell others about this verse? Yeah, I'm still thinking through this. It reminds me of a book. I forgot who wrote it. But it has a chapter saying that Jesus is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion, that he is somehow both. So you see the power... And at the same time, the other side of the coin, you see this tender shepherd that carries the little lambs. And I think we need to see God as both. Yeah, that, um, <clears throat> that um, paradoxical combination that seems impossible. We have a holy father. Right? How can you have a God who's the judge and who's also a father. And, you know, um, I'm listening to Tim Keller often, but uh, one of the things that he mentions is this whole idea that, that um, we got to have a just God in order for the world to be safe, or to it makes sense, because we need to know that somebody's going to make it right. And there is no joy unless there's, there's no comfort unless we know wrongs will be corrected. So we want a holy God. But at the same time, if we really have a holy God, we can't stand before him because we know that we aren't holy. So the world needs a holy God, but what does that do to us? It crushes us. And so the fact that God is holy father, he loves and is holy, but how can he do that without compromising himself? It's only because of the cross. And so what Jesus does on the cross is demonstrate that God is both holy and loving. Sin will be paid for, but he pays the price. So, other thoughts about this image, ready, of this carrying them close to his heart, gently leading those that have young? Any other? What would you say, John? <laughs> well, uh, he, is, he is both, and it's hard for... Uh, I think for the for a person who's not familiar with him, it's it's hard for them to picture him as both. He is either one or the other, uh, <clears throat> and uh, and and at times, you know, the different areas of the church have either gone one way or the other. You know, 
where they either he is only all judge, he is all power, and he's just coming to judge everybody. Uh, and sometimes they completely ignore that, and they go that he is the gentle shepherd and meek and mild, and, and uh, they forget that he is also the judge. And I think what the <clears throat> uh, prophet here is trying to say that he is both. He is not just coming with all power, but he does have his flock. And like any good shepherd, those that come to destroy the flock are going to see the strong arm, you know. But the flock itself is going to see his tender and careful side. So it would be like a father with his own children, you know. Don't attack the children. So if he's a good father, don't attack the children. But with the children, all they see is his gentleness. So unless they obviously disobey. So, but they'll still see the gentleness if he does things right. So. I, I know there's a, um, a ministry called Lion Lamb, and I, I totally agree. I think um, that his justice, a good father will uh, expect good behavior. And, um, and yet, you know, he has that heart for the child. So it, it, to me, there's no, no problem there with the two. Anyone else? Part of our problem as humans is we tend to either be A or B. I had this Bible college professor that was Mr. Both And. He always talked about both and, and we kind of made fun of that. But we have a hard time seeing that God could be totally both of those things in the same time frame. There's a judge in, in Ottawa County who's the judge of probate. He's also over the juvenile court. And I've seen him in, in very quick succession be the stern, strict, meticulous, no-nonsense judge. You know, you messed up. And then encourage the next person because they're doing well. And his voice shows concern and, and love for their well-being, not just for them, be, you know, obeying the rules. But even that man can't totally be both in the same instant. When he's talking, he's one or the other. But somehow God is big enough that in the same, in the exact same time, he's both. And depending on what we need, sometimes we need the strictness, the sternness, like I messed up and I need to give an account to God. And sometimes we just need to be sheltered and taken care of like the lambs. But, but our human mind limits us from being able to really comprehend that he could be both at once. It's a thing we have to just accept and not try to understand it because it can't be understood. Like so many other things about God, about free will and election, and Jesus is human and he was God, there's so many times that human logic would contradict and say it can't be both. But it is both. Yeah, there's the <clears throat> realization that we have, we have to give an account to God, but in the end, we're okay. So even if his wrath uh, kindles against us, it is, as now as believers, it's a um, corrective action 
of a loving disciplined father, right? It's not judgment of an enemy. It's it's the father who who disciplines the son or daughter that he delights in for their benefit, for their long-term good. But I, I do think that this is especially what makes the gospel so important to focus on and so hard to do so because this is the same, the gospel is that same thing. How does Jesus pay the price and me not pay the price at the same time? It, it's, that's how it works. But that's that, that, uh, that tension, that both end that we need to keep. John? Well, I, I just remembered thinking that uh, the, the theme, it doesn't end with Isaiah. It's not the only place you see it. And I, I, I like, and actually it talks about, <clears throat> does get right to the gospel too. Uh, Revelation 5, 5 and 6. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome as to open the book and its seven seals. So here he's described as a lion. Write the next verse. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so we have, in a sense, you have the gospel there because you have the lion who is also a lamb, and the lamb was slain. So, and why was he slain? Well, he was slain for, he paid the penalty for our sins. So this is a great thing. And, and Isaiah has, is using, you know, the God is using words here. Did you see the use of words in the previous one? He, um, he comes with power and his arm rules for him. And he gathers the lambs in his arms. I mean, that the contrast is there, even in the imagery that's used. How, how precious it is, then, to recognize when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, right? God is talking about this is, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him. And Jesus, and then we, you know, Isaiah said he tends his flock like a shepherd. This is great imagery of the great shepherd. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the good shepherd. And the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so the continuity, Isaiah would say, I recognize that. Jesus, you're using my words. You're using the things that I got the privilege of writing down for God. So those are, those are good things, good things to remember. All right. Some other things about God that are pretty cool here. God asks, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or the breadth of his hand marked or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? So again, who has measured the waters? in the hollow of his hand. What's the hollow of your hand? Is that just the part you can hold right here? That's not very much water for me. Or with the breadth of his hand, so, eh, that's about uh, 20 billion light years, you know. Um, the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales 
and the hills in a balance. So from our perspective, the least significant thing on earth is dust. Right? I mean, you can blow it away. And the biggest things we can imagine is the mountain. I mean, if you've seen the mountains up close, they, they kind of change your view of a lot of things, especially how big a mountain is. <laughs> they just get bigger and bigger the closer you get to them. Oh, man, what I saw from way back was a grassy approach to the mountain is actually a forest of trees. Those things were, you know, and you get closer. Those those are gigantic boulders. And so the he weighs the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance. So what's, uh, what's the point of this part of the passage? Phil, what would you say is the point of this part, these two verses? <laughs> it's kind of... I, th I think it's giving you a, giving the reader a sense of the breadth and depth of God, you know, and these two verses are just hard to wrap your head around, other than, well, that's who he is, <laughs> you know, he's, he's that big, you know, and I remember a couple years ago, Sue, we went with Sue and her sister, and we went to Alaska and saw her brother. And that is just, there's no other way to describe it than surreal. I mean, you know, you, you see a 3D photo, and that's, that's what it is, and it changes with the movement of the sun and shadows of the clouds. It's it, it's you you can't describe, you know. It, it <laughs> all you do is end up saying, "Wow, God, you did this." <laughs> So remember the context here of what we're being told, right? Comfort, comfort my people. See, here's your God. See, here he comes. He's coming with power and with reward. Why this? What? If you were a people who was being chased out of your home and captured by an enemy and dragged away to another land in an exile, well, how is this a comfort to you? What, why does this function? How does this, what is this reminding us of? It demonstrates God's magnitude, but also his control. I mean, God's outside of our understanding of dimension, right? He's outside of X, Y, and Z. That's why he's able to hold the dust of the earth in a basket, weigh mountains and hills on scales and balances. He is in full control of all things, such that all the waters are in the, the, the hollow of his hand. And so I think that provides the exile comfort to know their circumstances are yet still in God's hand. They are yet still under the control of the fully sovereign God over all creation. He didn't just make it. He still yet holds it in his hands and retains full control over all things. And I, th 
that's kind of comforting to me. It's like, it, it, it's a comfort through wow. I, I like, you know, Phil said, you just have to say wow. It's a, I think a, there's a hope in the wow, a comfort in the wow. Yeah, there, this is what um, I've heard some teachers refer to as a dose of the transcendent, right? You need to be reminded of how big God is and how powerful he is. And the waters in particular in Hebrew literature in the Old Testament is often a symbol of chaos and out of control. The, the oceans rage and it, it's a frightening thing to be cast into the sea. It's, it's, a, it's chaotic. And they had no idea how deep it really is. And we, you know, I mean, not with the same measurements we have today. And the sea is deep, and the earth is mostly water. And gigantic waves are terrifying. I mean, have you seen those uh, videos of um, Navarre, Italy, where people surf? There's this particular phenomena where underground, underwater uh, valley kind of collapses tightly, and so a, a ocean wave escalates in height, and there's like 70, 90-foot waves, and people are surfing down them. The, the only way you can get on them is through a jet ski pulls you to them because you could never survive it. And, and you see this gigantic thing moving with power, and there's a little streak, and you zoom in, and it's the person on a surfboard. You'll have your life going 90 miles an hour down this water. Just crazy. And God holds all of that. And if you think about the grand scheme, a mountain is kind of small, really, compared to the whole planet or the oceans. And God measures all these things out. And so he's the powerful creator, and he wants his um, hearers, he wants his people to say, why are you so rattled by this shifting of power with people that are just grass when I'm the one who's marked off everything you can measure, the, the breadth of the heavens, the unfathomable distances that are out there, and he marked them off with his hands. So it's a pretty powerful statement about how big God is. And I think that's an important thing we need. Joel, another thought that you came. Yeah, you should sit right back. I particularly like it because the previous verse really highlighted, I think, his intimacy. So where he gathers the lambs in his arms, tends the flock like a shepherd. They're close to his heart. He gently leads. This is just really, really intimate language. And then we kind of space out to, like you said, the dose of the transcendent. And I think the combination of those two is I'm close to his heart and he's really, really big. That dose of transcendency and and shot in the arm of intimacy is i think particularly encouraging and comforting and when we get rattled when life gets us all nervous it's got to be because we aren't thinking this way right we're just we've forgotten what's really going on we've we've let our thinking get carried away and become afraid and nervous about things that we think are out of control. Oh, no, who's going to stop that person with those great big bullets? You know, bullets are puny to God. Um, <clears throat> look how he keeps going. Verse 13, who can fathom the spirit of Yahweh? 
or instruct Yahweh as his counselor? Whom did Yahweh consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the way, the right way? Now what's he saying? What's the shift in emphasis here? We saw his power, right? He, he measures out creation. He knows the size of it. But now he's asking questions about what? What's the, what's the variable on the table? John? His wisdom and understanding. Yeah, we, I don't think God is doing it right. If this is what's true, think of those objections we talked about earlier, right? How can God be, be um, how can evil exist and God exist at the same time? And people will stand back and judge him or some atheist will say, God can't be true because he didn't answer my prayer or whatever, right? Those kinds of words and thoughts are accusations against whether God's smart, wise, right? And look what he's saying. Who, who, did, who did the Lord need as a teacher? Who taught God how to be God? Who did the Lord consult? Hey, um, can, I, uh, can I do a, you know, dial your friend thing and call and say, all right, you guys, take a poll. What should I do in this case? I'm kind of, I'm kind of at a, a crosswords. I can't figure out what to do. You know, is that God would never, right? He doesn't need us to teach him or enlighten him. And so, so many uh, atheistic claims pretend to be from a place of wisdom. And we don't understand what we're talking about. We don't have a right. I mean, if God, <clears throat> if God actually were evil, would we have any more right to condemn him than we do now? No, he can be what he wants to be. He's, he, he actually, he, he is who he is. He can't even just be who he wants to be. He is who he is. And so the, the reality that he is a good God is kind of a really neat thing because there's no rule that said that God's, if there's ever going to be a God in the universe, he has to be a good God. You know, there's no such rule. There's no such outside constraint. He's the one who gives us the idea of even being good versus evil. And so God is unassailable here. And, and for somebody to say, I don't like what you did. You didn't answer my prayer when I was in need or... You, you know, you allowed suffering to happen in my life and I didn't want it to happen. Who am I to say that that was actually not good? I mean, in a silly kind of way, but, you know, can you imagine an infant saying, I don't want to be born. It's comfortable in here. I don't want it. This is horrible. It's cold and I'm going to cry. And, and birth sounds like this horrible experience because you have no idea what you're talking about, right? You're refusing to be born. Who, what makes you think you're smart enough to decide whether or not the agony, if you want to call it agony, of coming out and breathing your own air is such a horrible thing. You little arrogant brat, what do you think you are, right? You know, that, that's how we talk to God because we don't know what, what we think as suffering is actually going to accomplish for our good, right? We don't know um, 
what we perceive as unassailably evil might not be at all. It might be beneficial to us in the end. And so the whole accusation that we could accuse God of being evil assumes that we have more knowledge than he does. And he's infinite. He, this is, he's, a different kind of, he's a different kind of being. He existed by himself. He doesn't need anybody. And so this is a good reminder for all of us all the time. I hate my life. Really? Do you have a better plan? Oh, really? How, you know, on what basis could you argue that your own plan for your life would be better than the one that's actually happening? So I need to be reminded of this. I need this dose of, of uh, transcendence quite often, actually. Any, did that spur any thoughts or any, any comments? I think if we, being finite and are only around for a brief period of time on this earth, even by anybody's measure, if we think that we can be the Lord's counselor and question him, our God is way too small. He hasn't been around long enough because he's been around no longer than I have. And I think he's, and we must remember, he knows not only the beginning, but he also knows the end and everything in between. Yeah, there's two components. To, I, I really like what you reminded me is if we understand God totally, by definition, we must not be talking about the real God because we're finite. He's infinite. So the very fact that you think you would understand everything God's doing is a false understanding, right? We could never. But the other thing is to, to think that we could tell him what to do is such an arrogant thing. So it's not, not only that we don't know him, the idea that we know what we ought to do or what he ought to do. This forces us into a humble posture, right? This forces us to realize like Job did, right? When Job complained about God's apparent abandonment, apparently he was being punished when he wasn't wicked, then God kind of spends a few chapters saying these kinds of things to him. Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did And, and Job ultimately concludes as, man, I spent... I spoke like a fool. I didn't know what I was thinking. I, I see now. I repent. So, any other thoughts that this part uh, generates? So, what's the next verse? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? So, again, that's a that's a parallel of what we just said. Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him, or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? So God has the monopoly on wisdom. And uh, being wise in our own eyes is perhaps one of the greatest acts of rebellion that we could commit. All right. Well, we got five more minutes. <clears throat> the next idea is surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. So I think that's a good isolated idea. What's the idea of this verse? What do you think? It kind of brings it back to the whole political thing and the fact that they 
were going to be taken and, and overrun and conquered by this other nation and taken away. And you could think you could think that this enemy is just too overwhelming and nobody could ever stand against them. You're powerless. But if nations are like a drop in a bucket of water, these big mean enemies that we have are nothing. They're just dust. And it might not really help you day to day with your suffering that the enemy imposed, but at least you can know that in the end, God's going to take care of this and that these, these big giants that you face are nothing. They're just nothing. It sort of helps to have that in your mind. Like, go ahead, do what you want to me, but you're nothing. Yeah, I think, I think there's a port, an important perspective that, yes, they were going into captivity, but the nations were not in total control. I mean, the, Assyria wasn't, <laughs> the, the, God was still in control, and he still was going to fulfill his purpose in his people. I'm reminded of a few times in history where this has played out, right? Pharaoh was so powerful and he was going to destroy the people and and uh, they became a drop in the bucket, right? right? They all drowned in the Red Sea. <coughs> and, um, you know, I, I sometimes watch um, colorized World War II history. There's a Netflix uh, show that's... Uh, World War II in color, and it's a documentary slash history, but they um, have colorized a lot of real footage, and some of it's horrific. You can't hardly watch it. But the, um, the, the incredible power of military nations just completely reversed in a, in a, in a moment almost, several times. And, and even um, godless historians say, if this hadn't happened in exactly this minute, then, you know, it's hard to imagine how the whole course of history would have gone. And God just blows them away. What is, I mean, like dust. What is this, um, they are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Do you get the imagery? What is the imagery of that regard? What does it mean to regard something as dust on the scales? What is that imagery, Marie? Not much weight, or not much, um, that was where I was thinking that influence in the end. Um. When I was in high school, I worked at a meat market, a butcher shop, and um, one of my first customers ever was a nice lady, and my, my boss sort of set me up to have me wait on a, her because he knew that no matter how poorly I did that it would turn out okay. And so I had never in my life ever done anything customer service. It was my first job ever. I was really, really, um, was a what behind the ears or whatever. I was a rookie. And so she wanted a pound of hamburger. And so I started guessing how much a pound of hamburger was, and it's on the scale. And I'm pinching off little tiny pieces of meat. It was just like so, so ridiculous, so just took me forever to get it that scale to finally go to a pound. 
And then I just, I didn't know what to do next, so I just handed it to her. I didn't wrap it up. I didn't do that. I just handed her a pound of, uh, and my boss says, well, you think maybe we should wrap it for her first? And I said, how do you do that? And then I learned how to wrap hamburger. And it was really, he was kind of mean, I think, to embarrass me so much. But he was my youth leader as when I was in junior high, too. So it was my first job, first anything. But the point is, is that within short time, I got pretty good. You can pretty much grab a pound of burger almost every time. And then you just grab a couple more pinches off of it or onto it. And, and the scale is going, yeah, it's a little bit above the, it's above the pound mark and it's good. And you wrap it up and give it to them, you know, 1.001 pounds or something fine. The point is that I've never, ever had a customer say, hey, would you wipe the dust off the scale first to make sure I don't get burnt? I don't get ripped off for paying for dust, right? The dust is insignificant. It is in the realm of mathematics. It's non-significant digits, right? It doesn't make a difference in the end. It's a meaningless variable. It doesn't contribute to the conclusion. I weigh all the islands, and they're so minuscule. They're fine dust. They're even smaller than dust dust. They don't make a difference in how this is going to turn out. It, I got it weighed out, and the nations are not even in the significant digits of our calculation here. So God is, he's going somewhere. He knows what he's doing in history, and he will not fail. And no matter how Herod tries to kill all the babies, Jesus is safe, and Jesus will accomplish his great mission. And so it's, a, it's an amazing thing. It's, as frightening and as frustrating as life can be and as powerful, other people, aren't you afraid? To, it, it frightens me how much power human beings have. And they're so foolish. And it scares me. But I forget that God's not rattled. He knows exactly what he's doing and it's moving forward. And he can turn, he can turn history on which way the sun shines. So easy. All right? Well, Father in heaven, thank you for the truth that you are transcendent. You are our God. I'm sorry for the times I forget and, and I get caught up in my uh, temporal, transient moments. Help me to remember and to rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.